Welcome back to a very special episode of the SBS Sports Talk Show presented by the Sports Business Society. The Philadelphia Eagles are Super Bowl champless no longer. They won the Super Bowl on Sunday. We will dive into that and give a preview to the offseason before we talk about our hypothetical question, which is Super Bowl related. Make sure you listen to this at 1.5 times speed. Hit it! All right, this is co-host Nick O'Connor. All right, we're going to start off talking about the Super Bowl and all the exciting things that happened. Um, first, Mike, I'm just going to ask where your overall impressions. Um, I mean, the uh, the Eagles won a Super Bowl. Um, took them 52 years to do so. Uh, it was a great game. Um, couldn't be happier for Nick Foles and for the Eagles and all the people that have stuck with them for all these years and you know to go and win your first Super Bowl not only you know against Tom Brady um and the Patriots but also to to win a really really quality uh game is is very special um and as someone who's been an Eagles fan basically my whole life uh it was a great great way to to capture that first one and uh very very exciting yeah, no, it really did come down to the end of the game. Um, I think that's all you can ask for, really, in the Super Bowl. Um, two great teams battling it out. And it was just, you know, it was amazing to see, you know, Philadelphia get his first win. You know, I just want to say congratulations. Um, and I think as an Eagles fan, you got to be, you know, pretty excited that you're able to do this with Nick Foles. And you're coming back next year with Carson Wentz, um, not losing too many key players, hopefully. Uh, how are you feeling about next season? Yeah, I'm honestly uh, pretty surprised that they're not the favorites. I think if you currently looked, uh, the Patriots were the favorites at like four or five to one odds. And then you had the Eagles and Packers either tied or the Eagles were slightly ahead at something like seven to one. And quite honestly, I mean, I, I think the Eagles should be favored. Obviously, the big question for them into the offseason is going to be, is Carson Wentz going to be available Um at the start of the season, are they going to trust that he is available and be willing to trade Nick Foles, which probably will get them a pretty nice return after the way he played in the last two games of the season? Um, but, you know, they're, they have one to two starters, depending who you want to count as starters as uh, free agents going into the offseason. They're not going to have to make any drastic money-saving cuts. Um, so, I mean, this is a team coaching staff is intact. No reason for them not to have really high expectations moving forward into next year and then beyond. I, I think the Eagles um, are ba- are probably set up to be the best uh, team in the NFL for the foreseeable future if you're looking at a 10-year scope right now. Yeah. Well, not only, only are they hoping, you know, Carson Wentz to become back, you know, healthy and active, but, you know, to be able to reproduce what he did last season. Obviously, an MVP caliber season if he played it out. Do you think he will be able to reproduce those numbers, given that this hasn't really been consistent? Yeah, I I think for him, um, obviously, with the history of like an ACL tear, he's probably going to be maybe not the same for the first couple months of the season. Um, But they usually, by the time you get to a full year post-injury, which would be early December, uh, you should be at about 100%. Maybe it'll take him a while to feel things back out, but knowing him, knowing his work ethic, the Eagles coaching staff, no reason for me or any Eagles fan or anyone to believe that he isn't going to return to form. And really, he should only be getting better as time goes on. That's just the kind of player he is and kind of what he's capable of. So uh, 
No, I, I mean, pressure's going to be there. Tough schedule, obviously, first place schedule, but the uh, the Eagles are in excellent shape. So let's move on and talk about that Super Bowl. Um, obviously, final score, 41-33. to 33. Um, A lot of offense. I, most yards in an NFL game in history, regular or postseason, which is ridiculous. It was a Super Bowl. Um, I, well, as someone who didn't have as big of a rooting interest, what were kind of your key takeaways? What surprised you? Uh, what amazed you? What you know? What were your thoughts? Yeah, what amazed me, I say, is the the amount of trick plays that happened. I didn't think it was gonna be that um, aggressive in a game. I thought you know both teams were gonna play a lot more safe. Um, obviously, you see the Nick Foles play and the Tom Brady play both going in different directions. Um, you see, you know, Doug Peterson making some big shots with some plays. Um, I thought overall, you know, both coaches were really aggressive. Um, they needed to be because both defenses were re- were not really showing up. Um, Eagles defense really did not get started until the third and fourth quarter and start heating up and getting to Brady. Um, what, I guess, you know, watching the Eagles, what do you think the, was the biggest play that helped them win the game? Obviously, people say that Nick Foles catch, but what were your impressions? Yeah, before we I answer this, Will, I know uh, at your... Your high school, what, they ran that. They run that play, right? And which is where Nick Foles went to school, Westlake in yeah. Texas. Yeah, so Westlake actually ran that play twice with Sam Ellinger, who's now uh, finishing up his freshman year at University of Texas. Um, and then As their most, quarterback. Yeah. Their starting quarterback. Yeah, and then they most recently also ran it this year um, with his um, successor. So... I think all three of those plays were touchdowns, so pretty good track record there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The uh, Patriots, when they played the Eagles in 2015, which was Chip Kelly's last year, they ran that exact play to Brady for like a 30, 40-yard reception. Um, so back to your original question, what we said, what was the, the biggest play? So, yeah, the one that's getting all the publicity is the play they're calling the Philly Special. There's a really cool um, video of like the Eagles mic'd up, Nick Foles mic'd up, Doug Peterson says – because I think they called a timeout. He says, we're going for it. Nick Foles says, why don't we run the Philly special? And Doug Peterson thinks about it. He's like, yeah, let's do that. And <laughs> they come out and they run this trick play. But I, the one play that um, I think it's gotten a little bit of buzz, but obviously the most important play of the game, in my opinion, and I said this as watching the game with, with my dad, and right before the play happened, I said this is the most important play in franchise history. It was uh, when they were driving in the fourth quarter, uh, five minutes left, down by one point, 33-32. It's a fourth and one at roughly their own 45-yard line, um, and they, they opt to go for it, which was very obvious um, if you had watched the Eagles all season long. And and Nick Foles uh, faced a little bit of pressure but was able to get it on a little bit of a pick play to uh, Zach Ertz, who made a nice catch, kept that drive alive. And uh, from there, they were able to continually move the ball. Aguilar had a nice drive, and then Ertz punched it in um, at the end there, and then they, of course, the other Brandon Graham getting that strip sack and Tom Brady, little Michigan on Michigan crime <laughs> there. Um, but no, I, I think the Ertz play was really the one. If they didn't get it, Patriots were going to take over, potentially bleed the clock out, go up a touchdown uh, in a two-point conversion. Um, but they were able to convert it, stay on the field. Patriots couldn't get that stop all game long, really. So yeah. that's what it came down to. Yeah, so watching that game, I mean, it was really tough to tell for me you know, was this the defense really not showing up or was it Brady in the offense just showing something very, very special? Yeah, I, I think Jim Schwartz, uh, who's the Eagles defensive coordinator, he struggled against Belichick historically. Um, and the games that the Eagles really most underperformed this season were both against the Giants, who had an abysmal season offensively. And they were able to hurry up, short stuff, Eli slants, double moves, pick them apart. 
uh, both games. They they really, I mean, the end of the first game and then all the beginning of the second game, they really got after that Eagles defense. And I think it was pretty similar with Brady. I mean, guys were just wide open all game long. He made some amazing throws down the field and in the short and intermediate game. Um, but I mean, the guys were, they were open and the Eagles, they, they didn't get their pass rush needed to be the thing that, that got home and, and really, you know, amped the pressure up on Brady. And, uh, they didn't make a play all game until, you know, it really mattered. So thankfully they, they did that. Obviously that's what matters at the end of the day. But I mean, I, I think it was a combination of the Eagles defense. They didn't, they don't have those short cover corners where they can really, you know, jam you and press you and, you know, not let these guys be wide open. And the Pats did a great job blocking for Brady and he was clean for almost the entire game and he was able to just pick them apart. I mean, there was no part of the second half, uh, where I thought the Eagles were going to get a stop on the Patriots. And it's just, and, and mm-hmm. until that fumble, they, they didn't. So, I mean, there's just no, I mean, it was it was obvious the Patriots get, could get whatever they wanted on that Eagles defense. But, but you know, thankfully uh, for the Eagles, Nick Foles and the offense uh, showed up and did their job. And, you know, shouts out to the Eagles coaching staff, Doug Peterson and, and co. I think they outcoached Belichick and co. And I think that that's why they won the game. Yeah. When watching the Eagles drive down the field and that one pass to Alshon Jeffrey where it tips off and the Patriots get an interception, how much did you think that that was going to affect the later game in the sense that Eagles went from potentially scoring you know, a crucial touchdown to now the Patriots have the ball and they're driving down the field? Yeah, I, I actually wasn't too upset with, with that play. Um, obviously, it was a bad break um, for the Eagles because they had Jeffrey and he kind of just batted it up and got intercepted. Um, they're up 15-6 at the time. They just gotten a big first down conversion on a Jay run on third down and four. And they're up, you know, 15-6. You're like, wow, if we punch this in, which no reason to think they weren't because they're moving the ball at will. It's like, wow, we're up, you know, 22-6. This is a big lead. Um, you know, when it happened, it was the Patriots didn't have good field position, which, you know, didn't matter the entire game. Field position was a non-factor because of how good these offenses were. Um, but, you know, it, it happened, and it wasn't one of those where I was like, this is going to change the game drastically. I thought the Eagles were still in control at that point. Obviously, it was a bad break, but uh, that wasn't one of the plays where I'm hanging my hat on. It's just it's just one of those unfortunate things. Of many, many fortunate things that happened for the Eagles in that game, that was one, probably the only one that wasn't uh, in their favor. Yeah. Now, something was really interesting to me, especially in the earlier parts of the game, was the rule to move the extra point back, you know, having that, you know, was really an impact in the beginning parts of the game um, with, I would believe, both kickers missed. They both missed, yeah, and um, had an extra point, and, yeah. and Gostowski missed on a bad on a bad snap. Uh, he missed field a 25-yard yeah, yeah, field yeah. goal, too. Exactly. It was interesting to see, you know, how that kind of played, um, you know, important factor, especially in the earlier parts of this game. Do you like that, you know, how that's kind of changed the game, or do you think it should be shifted back? Oh, no, definitely. It's mm-hmm. it's definitely a good a good rule you got to make those guys earn it I think the percentage difference in them making it is it's down like maybe five percent worse um at making the 33 yarder versus the 19 yarder um it's funny though Jake Elliott the Eagles kicker he had missed a fair amount of extra points all season but once you got him to 40 plus the guy was money (laughs) absolute money so he for whatever reason, I mean, we, something psychology. Yeah, yeah. I, I, who knows what, what's going on with him? The harder it gets, the better he gets. But I mean, me and my, you know, we're watching the game. Me and my dad, and you know, all every extra point all postseason, we're like, come on, Jake, like you know, because and all the other stuff, you you feel like the guy's got it on lock. Yeah. But I mean, for Goskowski to miss his as badly as he did um, 
was surprising, and it really did alter the game. I mean, those points, they matter a lot in, you know, tight games like this. So, you know, you hate to give up that point, and you hope it's not the difference in the game. Um, but no, I think it's a good rule in general for football to, to have that and, you know, maybe, you know, incentivize a two-point conversion. Um, the Eagles went for it early in the game after their second touchdown when they didn't need to because they wanted to get up to 17 instead of 16. Um, they didn't get it. Um, but no, it's a great rule, and I mean, you saw it. it happened in the Super Bowl it affected the game and, yeah. and it's not a bad thing at all yeah no I agree with that um I think you know overall just the Super Bowl you know it was a fantastic Super Bowl all around I don't think there's much more you could have asked for in a Super Bowl yeah a lot of offense um I guess maybe some football purists may have wanted to see a little bit more of a defensive game maybe mm-hmm. or just some stops somewhere I mean this yeah. is just a track meet I mean it was yeah. guys but for me as a football fan I like how there's no really three and outs I don't know it just for me it slows down the game yeah, you one, the pine, one commercial punt. you know all this stuff you know when teams can make a drive down the field even if it doesn't end in a score at least it's exciting to see that momentum to see that build up and not to see the yardage I like that yeah well it kind of comes down to what does the NFL want I mean it seems like with all the rule changes they made they kind of want the, that kind of game mm-hmm. I mean Maybe not to that extreme, but I mean, they, you know, the guys are just running up and down the field. I think it is more exciting for the average fan. Um, now, for, you know, do you want football to be a game where you can't play defense? I don't know if that's necessarily what happened. I think these were just two offenses that had good matchups against the defenses. Um, the Eagles defense more disappointing because uh, I think they just have a better personnel, better players than the Pats, and, and they didn't really do anything all game except for the end. Um, but no, I, I mean, I think it was exciting. Will, what were uh, what were your thoughts on how exciting and how good the game was? Yeah, so I actually really enjoyed watching the game. Um, I think the minimal amount of punts um, made it, I mean, that's the type of game I like watching. It reminds me more of the college game with these high-powered offenses. The Big 12 football style. <laughs> <laughs> a little shorter of a game, though, so that was nice. <laughs> um, but I thought the aggressive play calling, as Nick was talking about, for the Eagles, I wasn't surprised. I kind of expected them to come out and be a little more aggressive. But I was really surprised with the Patriots, especially with that pass play of Tom Brady. I never would have expected that mm-hmm. in a hundred years. So. I mean, they they did it to the Eagles once before, and you've seen Belichick. He went for it on that uh, fourth down and five, the play after the drop by Brady, um, and they were at their the Eagles for thirty five yard line. So it would have been a fifty plus field goal. They went for it there, but the field goal that Gostowski missed, the third twenty five yarder, was a fourth down and one where Brandon Cooks tried to hurdle Rodney McLeod, UVA guy, and didn't get it. And it was fourth and one, and that's like the Brady sneak is like never fails. And they opted to kick a field goal there uh, when the game was at 9-3. to three, And they missed it, and that one really hurt them too. So, yeah, it's interesting to me that Belichick, he was aggressive in spots, and he wasn't aggressive in other spots. Um, and, and Doug Peterson, I mean, you know, hats off. He knew to be the Patriots, you couldn't afford to take your foot off the gas, and uh, that's exactly what he did. He kept the pressure on, and he scored and he went for it when he needed to and it worked out yeah no speaking of that fourth down conversion you think Belichick has been reading some advanced stats or something like that because you know as we talked about um you know there's an article basically where you should go for on every single fourth and one fourth and two I want to say almost for every fourth and three yeah I would say outside of situationally so outside of the end of the game you're down two points basically in any normal situation that's not like game dependent like game ending dependent fourth and three and shorter you should pretty much and it's almost and they say almost more of the time you should go for fourth and four and fourth and five as well so it's interesting to see if kind of coaches start adapting that philosophy going for it more 
on fourth down with newer coaches coming into the league and things like that. Obviously, we haven't really seen that in the past, even though those stats have been out, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think a lot of teams um, are going to look at what Doug Peterson and what the Eagles have done. Uh, they have some some guy um, who went to one of the Ivy League, MIT, <laughs> one of those schools, um, and he's in the booth and he's advising Doug Peterson on what you know when are the mathematically correct times to go for it. And, and I think he follows it pretty closely with a combination of how he feels. And he's obviously very aggressive and he's willing to take the heat if it doesn't work. And I think Eagles fans, you know, it's worked out, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they supported him in that, you know, this first two years there. Um, and I think you might see that a lot more moving forward is, you know, fourth and one, you pretty much should always be going for it. Um, you know, whenever you're at in the goal line area, you know, seven's worth a lot more than three, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, I think teams are going to have to, I think the Eagles win over the Patriots is, might signal teams starting to look at that model of the aggressiveness and, and trying to emulate that, especially when you have, you know, an offense, you know, like the Eagles that you can trust in and, you know, just believe in your guys and have that feel. Uh, I think you could see it more. Why do you think, why do you think the NFL has lacked in terms of adopting new play styles and adopting, you know, advanced metrics? Obviously we've seen it with baseball, we've seen it with basketball, but we haven't really seen it with football. Yeah, I, I think it might be just a general conservatism. It's kind of like an old man institution type of thing where, you know, the owners are old. But I, I think a lot of it comes down to the head coaching jobs are so insecure. It's almost like being a CEO of a of a big company mm-hmm. is that you're you're given such little time to to you know, to develop and have a chance that you're you're almost better off taking the safe way out and if it does work if it doesn't if it doesn't work people are going to say wow i understand what he was doing there meanwhile if you're aggressive and it doesn't work people are going to say oh he's just gambling he's never you know he's never going to win so i think it's just easier for them to fall back on the plan of okay i'm not going to be aggressive and i you know the media is not going to pick up on it because it's the same football that everyone's been watching for you know the past however many years 50 60 plus years um and, and i think that's something that should change i think um people should be on these these teams more when they're not aggressive because I honestly you are the only thing you're doing is you're hurting your team so is that in part the owner's fault because they don't give coaches that long of a tenure to try to prove themselves to try to adapt this play style obviously we see you know coaches leave in six months in a year very short tenure sometimes especially when you don't have that success yeah I, I don't know if it's directly from the owners I would think that a short patience whether it be the owners or the GMs I think that's definitely a contributing factor to um, a lot of these teams like perpetual um, struggles. I mean, you just think of the instability of team like the Browns or the mm-hmm. Jets or the Bills. I mean, these teams are revolving door at head coach, and you know you don't really if you don't allow that coach to bring in their talent and develop their style. I mean, that can hinder you from you know from winning. And I think the Eagles were were analytically uh, focused, and they were behind Coach Peterson and. Uh, willing to let him do that and I mean it's worked out really well for them um they've been pretty consistently good on you know fourth and short um and converting those so I mean it worked out I think it's a it's a great way to play and it obviously you know it's it's the style that helped them win the Super Bowl yeah so we already talked about it a little bit but in terms of predictions for next year obviously we see Patriots are number one already uh Eagles are number two outside of those top two teams what are you expecting from the rest of the field yeah, I, I would like to see um, Aaron Rodgers get back healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they got a couple of shakeups there in the front office, and I think along the coaching staff as well. I would like to see um, the Packers kind of get back into things. 
um, and challenge the Eagles. I think the Eagles are going to be the cream of the crop in the NFC, along with, you know, your Green Bays. And the Saints, I think, will be very good. The Rams will be competitive. The Seahawks, too. So a lot of the, the teams that you, you usually think um, are going to be good. And uh, personally, I think an Aaron Rodgers-Carson Wentz matchup um, in the playoffs, that would be one thing that I'd be really looking forward to, not mm-hmm. on the regular season schedule. You know, one team that I think is going to have perhaps a surprising season is the 49ers. Yeah, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo. Obviously, yeah. we see them end on a very, very high note. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they can continue that success into next season. Um, you know, watching Gr- uh, Jimmy Garoppolo a little bit, I mean, he's truly impressive. Um, you know, to see what he could do with that football club and really change them around. So it'll be very interesting to see if he can continue that into next season. Um, I think perhaps if the Broncos get a new QB. Kirk the Bra- Cousins, Nick Foles. Kirk yeah. Cousins, Nick Foles going to the Browns, potentially, you know, one of those teams to see if they could have a monumental impact. Um, I think those will also be interesting. So kind of looking at free agency and seeing how that pans out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree with the 49ers. Imagine the scenario where, because I think the Cardinals will be in play for both Nick Foles and for Kirk Cousins. So imagine a scenario where one of those guys is with the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and then you have Garoppolo and Shanahan with the Niners, Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll in Seattle, and Goff and McVay with the Rams. <laughs> That's a really nice division right yeah. there. Plus, the Cardinals have some talented skill guys, David Johnson, Fitzgerald on defense too. So that could be a really fun division. On the AFC side, um, I'm really excited about that, as you alluded to the Broncos, that AFC West, because I Patrick Mahomes will be the starting mm-hmm. quarterback there. They got a nice return for Alex Smith. That's going to be a very interesting team. Um, the Broncos should be interesting. you got Gruden coaching Derek Carr and the Raiders. Um, you have the Chargers, and that's not a bad team either. So I think that's where most of the excitement is going to come. Andrew Luck and Deshaun Watson should be coming back in the South. Um, Mariota's got a new head coach. So I think yeah. next year there's a lot of teams that, that'll be competitive. Well, I think looking at next year, there's a lot of possibility. I don't think we really see that normally every NFL offseason. I feel like you kind of see that, oh, Patriots win. They're going to be the best next year. You know, all the other teams are kind of going to be the same. Um, I feel like this next year, there's a lot of teams that could really pop off and improve themselves. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Yeah, it's going to be uh, competitive, I think, for those playoff spots. Definitely in the NFC when you look at, you know, Garoppolo going to be making a, his his stance in, in San Francisco. Well, uh, NF- NFC West. NFC, NFC South, South is, is always competitive. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers coming back. The Vikings still have a very strong team. And obviously you have the Eagles and the Cowboys. With Zeke will be coming back for the full season. Um, I mean, you got a lot of good teams. Will, is there anything you're looking forward to uh, for next season? Yeah, so I just got a couple interesting offseason things that I'm uh, wondering about. The first one, the Vikings QB situation. What do you guys think is going to happen there? That's that's a good one. So all three of their quarterbacks, um, Case Keenum, who started the majority of the season, Bradford, who was the starter going into this season, and the franchise quarterback going into last season, Teddy Bridgewater, all three of those guys are free agents. Um, you would have to think they bring back one of them. I doubt it's going to be Bradford. Mm. They didn't give Case Keenum a huge vote of confidence. I, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine all three of those guys finding jobs elsewhere, Really interesting look for them would be a Nick Foles or Kirk Cousins too, though. Yeah, no, I that would be interesting to take that different route. I don't know if they're going to do that. I mean, if I'm the Vikings, I say, hey, you know, Case Keenum had an amazing season last season. I'm going to put my trust in him. Um, you know, he's going to be the QB at least for the next couple of years. Um, I don't think you really need to go for that monumental trade in free agency. I don't think that's really necessary. I think Sam Bradford is very comparable. I think you can build up, uh, you know, surrounding the team. And I think Case Keenum is the right choice. Okay, yeah, I, I could see Case Keenum coming back. I mean, I think... All these guys, Keenum, Kirk Cousins, Nick Foles, and 
and through a trade, they're going to be sought after um, yeah. by a lot of teams. So we'll see if if the Vikings try and you know strike a deal with Case Keenum before uh, he hits the open market because he is a free agent. Well, anything else? Yeah, so the next thing I got is the catch rule. There's been a lot of controversy over that this year, especially in the Super Bowl, and then a key game in the regular season with the Patriots at the Steelers. So what do you guys think is going to happen with that? Yeah, my take on that is, I mean, I guess my I guess my overall um, you know, response is more that I wish that the refs have some consistency. I think that's what you want as an NFL fan. So, you know, either you really implement the rule – and you put it into place, or you don't. I mean, it just seems like it was the exact same play with Des Bryant um, and what happened in the Super Bowl, and yet they called it two different ways. In my mind, when I look back at the replay, um, Mike, you know, probably has a little bit tainted image on that. I, I don't have um, a tainted you image. Know, so watching it as an impartial fan, I noticed that they were very, very similar plays, yet they were called differently. And especially when they had that big of an impact on the game, I think you just need to have some consistency on that, especially when you can replay it. Yeah, they're they're going to rewrite the rule in some way. I think the argument could be the Corey Clement one, um, which was in the third quarter. Uh that one, the ball might have come loose, and he didn't get that foot and bounce after it did. Well, so you this, may know. So watching it on TV, they didn't really have a good camera angle on the side when I was watching. I don't know. Does the booth have a different camera angle? No, they have the TV. They should have the TV. They have the TV camera angle, right? Yeah. So I was wondering, why can't they get that camera angle? Because I feel like it was if it was horizontal to him, that would have been we're the talking, best angle. We're talking about the one in the back of the end zone. The back of the end zone, yeah. right, with Corey Clement. I feel yeah. like they didn't have... Will, did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. I mean, I couldn't really tell. I thought that the... I mean, the cameras did the best they could, yeah. but... I mean, that one, it would, it's just hard to overturn that. Yeah. Like, I could have seen them overturn that. Uh, the one was Zach Ertz when he was going to the ground. This is the touchdown that ultimately won them the game. That was 100% a catch. I mean, he mm-hmm. had had, like, four feet plus a toe drag, I, I, and he was dove it for the... Was it, it, was, it was, like, four feet and a toe drag. I thought drag. It, was th- it was a three feet, or I thought it was similar to Des Bryant. I thought it was three feet. Like, but like, no, no, it was that, four. With, a, that, with like, a toe drag. Like, logically, I think that's a catch, mm-hmm. but under the way the rule is written, I don't think it should have been No, a they, they yeah. called that one. That's, that's ridiculous. They called that one right. They said they determined him to be a runner, which is exactly what it was, because he had taken four steps, including, I'll say it again, including a toe drag. So that was perfectly fine. But the problem is, like, we're, we're here debating, you know, a guy who caught the ball, you know, caught the five-yard line and dove for the end zone, and it's questionable whether he caught, whether it's a catch or not. That's ridiculous. That's what they need to change. They just need to find, like you said, Nick, a consistent way to rule it. And, and just stick with that and not make it illogical. I think the way the rule is well, now... the rules are just too ambiguous, I think. They can be interpreted in too many different ways. It has to be very, very, very clear, and like you should be able to see that on replay. And it also should be like realistic. Like If it yeah. looks like a catch, like it's a ca- like you don't need to have this rule where you know, you've, you've taken three steps in the end zone, but because you're going to the ground and the ball jars loose for a second, then all of a sudden it's, you know. But then I feel like that leads to the question too, is it more quality or should it be an actual explicit rule or should we leave it to the refs to be able to interpret? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and try and come up with the rule. I just think that they, there's got to be a way. For well, no, it's just to, more opinion on what you think is better. I, I mean, I think it's got to be kind of a combination of, you know, what's realistically a catch and also what's realistically a way that they can enforce it consistently. And mm-hmm. I think there's got to be some kind of combination of the two um, where, you know, you're not going to upset, you know, every, you know, fans every single time you're ruling on one of these that, like, clearly to anyone is a catch, Jesse James, Zach Ertz, but yet it's something that could be debated. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting maybe, the, you know, the role, if, you know, we will see an increased role in technology in the, in, you know, in the 
future seasons, perhaps with, you know, getting first downs, you know, line markers, things like that. Um, for this, I don't know. I think it's just writing clear rules. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. So that will uh, wrap up our 2017 NFL coverage. The pages turned. 2018 season. The off season's underway. The uh, Philadelphia Eagles will be the defending champions. Uh, I guess things will pick back up around the first or second week of March when the uh, free agency opens. Um, so before we move into our hypothetical, we want to talk about the Washington Wizards making some headlines real quick. Maybe get a little NBA in there. Yeah, no. So as a Wizards fan, it was, it was interesting to see, um, you know, the, if you guys haven't heard, the comments were that, you know, the Wizards team seemed to be performing better without Wall, you know, playing better as a team, um, having more assists. They had during that four uh, four game span, they had the most assists out of any team. Um, so things like that. And, you know, I've, you know, I've said for the past couple of years that, uh, or actually for the past, I would say about a year, that Bradley Beal is a better, you know, all around player than John Wall. Um, I've said that, you know, people have always laughed and, you know, things like that because John Wall is this big star um, and makes the big plays. Um, but in my mind, you know, Bradley Beal just does it all. He's uh, he's not a lazy defender. Um, he guards usually the top guy and he has in the past. Um, he can be that go-to scorer. Um, so for me, it's just interesting to see um, that there's kind of some validity to that. You know, when they weren't playing without ball, uh, Wall earlier in the season, they had some struggles. Uh, which concerned me a little bit, you know, with, you know, what I was thinking, but this kind of, I guess, reaffirms it a little bit. And Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think uh, I personally, I'm not, I'm not totally against the take that Beal is their best player. I mean, I think there's no doubt that John Wall makes him a better team when he's healthy and at his best. Um, I mean, when he's played in the playoffs, two of the last three years when they've almost made it to the conference finals, I mean, he's really, him and Beal are really the two catalysts. There's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, it's kind of weird to see John Wall, you know, go out and uh, team performs well um, with Beal kind of leading the way. And, and then you have, you know, Wall kind of slapping back on Twitter, doing his classic NBA player thing and, uh, you know, being, you know, creating a scene, you know, insulting Gortat that came out. And then uh, also him, you know, just refuting that the team is better without him. Um, you know, I think the important thing for them is, you know, get John Wall healthy for the playoffs. They should make it, especially after this nice little run they've had. Um, and, you know, they're kind of a dangerous team. We'll see if a team like the Wizards opts to make a big move at the trade deadline, I think. Uh, when is the trade deadline? Well, you have to look that up for us. But I think it's coming up really soon. Mm -hmm. um, so we could see and them we, make a yeah. big move. And we've heard Gortat, you know, in Gortat rumors, seems like, yeah, so. and, and, you know, outside of just the Wizards, we'll see if what Cleveland's going to do because mm -hmm. they're obviously struggling. We'll see if the Celtics know, make a move. The Celtics Lakers make a move, make a move potentially. Yeah, yeah so. clear some space. So, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see if there's anything big going down there. When What do you got, Will? So the trade deadline is... February 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so by the time this comes out, trade deadline will be that day. So Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's also interesting is this uh, free agency is that there's not as many players getting signed as they thought. Um, and that, that's the thing is that's in part of the reason because the projected revenues from last year were actually off and the actual revenues were down. Um, so I want to say that reduced the cap space and the amount they're actually able to play players. So you have some players that, you know, on max contracts that, and this, you know, probably revenue, um, you know, term that they probably shouldn't be getting paid that much. And so you see a lot of free agent players, you know, hoping to get this max contract, and they're probably not going to get that, and they're probably not even going to on a team. Yeah, I wonder what someone like Isaiah Thomas is going to get at this point. I don't yeah. know how. I don't know if he's going to get any money. He might get traded, um, you know, within the next couple of days 
as well. Yeah, I mean, we're alluding to that. It's kind of thrown a wrench where you have some of these terrible contracts. Think like the Wizards, Jan Mahimi, sixteen <laughs> yeah. million a year. Luol Deng, similar. Mozgov, but similar. this free agency, he would never get paid. Right, exactly. Day, yeah, not is, even close. Yeah. It was, it was the they the cap went up less than they anticipated. So that's as a player. Yeah, I mean, that's just being very fortunate about it's what timing. year. Yeah, this timing. It's timing. Yeah. yeah, you catch a break or you don't. All right. <laughs> So now we're going to move on into our hypothetical question. Uh, we alluded earlier that it is Super Bowl related. Um, so this one, I wouldn't call it realistic, um, but I would say it would definitely change some things up. So what would be the implications of, for the Super Bowl, a three-game series? Best two out of three. Yeah. So maybe we can start off with the negatives here, and then we can move on to the positives. Um, for me as a negative, I think that it would decrease um, – the viewership overall, because I think for a lot of those non-football fans, it wouldn't be this, you know, once every year type big deal that is, you know, always hyped up um, in which you attract so many people. Um, So I think a lot more non-football fans would, would not watch it. Um, and it would decrease viewership, you know, having those best of three games, I, you know, wonder, you know, what would the aggregate revenues be and that that would make up for it. Um, But I think it would be interesting in the sense that, you know, there'd be a lot of hype for three weeks, right? So you have, um, you know, potentially you could do like a home away neutral. Um, you could kind of give, you know, two home to the better record. Um, there'd be interesting, you know, playouts with that. But um, I think it'd be interesting in the, in the sense that, you know, how, how much would it affect viewership and things like that? Yeah, which would obviously be one of the NFL's biggest concerns. You would have to think, though, three three games will get you more viewership in the aggregate than just the one game. Now, obviously, your, yeah. market, your market would be a little bit more concentrated with the same the same people, but... I, I think from a football perspective, I think this makes things very interesting. I mean, we've seen in Super Bowls, you know, pretty colossal upsets. It seems like whenever there's a big underdog that are, you know, relative to the Super Bowl, they seem to win. You think the Patriots against the Rams, the Giants against the undefeated Pats, the Eagles against the Pats. I mean, you make it two out of three. I wonder if those underdogs have the same chance. And when you make it two out of three, which there's no football game where you football league where you play the same team three weeks in a row. You know, only time you play a team two weeks in a row is if it goes week 17 into wildcard weekend. Um, but I wonder how much that would affect coaching. I mean, think about a guy like, you know, Bill Belichick, who, um, you know, would be able to see a team, you know, once and get to play them the next week. And, you know, these are the games that mean everything. I think it would be a, create an interesting dynamic. Yeah, no, I think you spoke to it. I think it would definitely decrease the amount of underdog teams that win because you just won't get that one fluky game. You know, out of three games, usually you're usually going to get a better the, team. The Eagles was not a fluky win. But I'm not saying that well, technically. I'm just saying perhaps some of the Giants wins um, and other teams that were underdogs. Um, I think it would definitely, you know, decrease the amount of fluky games that you have. Um, I mean, especially just looking at Belichick, you think, you know, how many more championships would he have if there's best two out of three? You know, if he was playing those Giants teams best two out of three times, I would put my money yeah. on the Patriots. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, even going back, and even if they the Giants were guaranteed one game, I would suspect that the, the Patriots could win two more games after that versus those teams. Um, I think it would just be interesting. I think you're right, you know, it changed the coaching dynamic as well. Um, and, you know, maybe these... Coaches who have had maybe some fluky wins, you know, may not be as well respected without those Super Bowl wins, like a Coughlin or something like that. Yeah, I I just think that um, you know, and like maybe like being a sports purist, like you always want to see the uh, the best teams win, um, and and you would get more football out of it too. I mean, this is obviously uh, grossly unrealistic thing. I don't think it's reasonable for them to even try this. But at the same time, I think it would add a very interesting dynamic of creating a mini uh, like a mini series. Um, in football, 
And I just think overall, you know, you would you would see a lot of different things because by the, you know the third time you're playing a team or second time, I mean, you would really be pulling tricks out of the bag, mm-hmm. and it would really just kind of change. It would just change the game, and I don't necessarily think it would be a worse thing to have a little series, like no, from a, from yeah. a pure football standpoint. Yeah, like, I but think, for me as a fan, I like that one game special, you know, one game elimination, and you that's know, how football's played yeah. all year. And well, that's it's what creates March Madness, all the hype. You know what I mean? Because it's a one game elimination all the way through, so you never know if that top team might get upset. You know, just like in the Super Bowl, when you never know if that you know the overwhelming favorite might get upset by the underdog. So it's just it kind of creates that excitement. It creates more hype. I think. Um, I think that's something with the NBA's lack. You know, I mean, you don't really see underdogs win. You never. know, ever. Never. never. Football, I, you can get it. Football, you can get it. You know, I mean, March Madness, you can get it. Um, you know what I mean? But when you have those series sports for the playoffs, you know, you, you get the best team, which is good because, you know, if, if, you're, yes, if you're a sports purist, that's what you want. But also, you don't really get those underdogs, which I think kind of makes sports special. Yeah, Will, you want to uh, weigh in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be interesting. Um, but I just think three weeks of three and a half to four hours of watching the same two teams play in a row at the end of the season, I just feel like it's a little a little bit over the top. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I I wonder what, you know, I what the reaction would be to this. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I think more football, you know, you're theoretically seeing the two best teams, you know, and you got to win two to win the Super Bowl. I think that aspect of it would be uh, very exciting. But I also think logistically and just from like a pure like, okay, if you're in the Super Bowl, you're the Eagles, you're playing with your backup quarterback, you have one shot to win, you know, you just got to beat them the one time. Now, they may have won six times out of ten, but they only needed to win one, and I think that does make the game special in its own way, kind of in the same vein as March Madness. Um, Something else that I think, uh, like, so you said that some of the – um, non-dedicated football fans wouldn't watch as much. Mm-hmm. I think something else that would pull away from or add to those fans not watching as much is you'd probably lose the halftime performances and the good commercials because yeah. I feel like those are more one-time things, whereas you're not going to have three different halftime performances each week, and I feel like that's something a lot of people who don't care as much about the game are really um, excited for. Yeah, I definitely think all those factors, you know, ads not paying as much for commercial time. But there's no, three games, though. So. No, I know. I know, but still not paying as much. Decrease in viewership overall, you know, decrease in halftime shows, and just decrease in hype overall. So I I, I don't know. For me as a fan, I like that one game elimination. Uh, you know, perhaps as a sports peer, as you think differently. Well, I, I think from a, pure, from a uh, like, pure perspective of, you know, in what world would football ever resort to a two out of three between the same two teams? Like that, that doesn't, that part of it makes no sense. But I think from a, you know, from the standpoint of you're playing three games, it would become much, even more of a chess match than it already is. Um, I think that could make things um, pretty, pretty exciting uh, in its own way. Um, Definitely not something like the point rule that we talked about last week, this is not something that I would expect to ever happen, but it is, uh, I guess, worthy of discussion and a, and a nice way to wrap up our uh, football talk. Yeah, but talking about kind of monumental changes, um, just in general, you know, I mean, in, in sports organizations making that, um, NFL, MLB, NBA, um, I feel like you never really see those monumental changes all the time, right? They're very, very rare. You know, NBA with the three-point line. Shot clock. Uh, shot clock. You know, very, very rare monumental changes. Do you think as kind of we, I guess, move on into this new generation of watching, do you think that there will be more monumental changes to these sports all across? I, I think that's an interesting question. I think the league, 
there's two leagues out of the, the big three that we talk about the most that are most likely to do it. Um, and it's baseball and basketball for different reasons. Baseball, um, very like old time pastime sport. They're going to need to do things like add a pitch clock to kind of speed up the game even more and make it more interesting and exciting. Meanwhile, with basketball, a game that's, you know, doing really well among a young, uh, young age group, they have a very progressive commissioner and very progressive league. So I think those are the leagues where you're going to be likely to see changes whether yeah. that be expanding but we, but we've the court seen with the I mean, nfl though is that is it you know the past i think two or three years change a, the extra a point de- well decrease in viewership though in the yeah. past two or three years so if you know you continuously see a decrease in viewership and i think as a you know commissioner you gotta think you know what changes can i make to try to capture more fans right and so they're like i was saying they move the extra point back mm. and that in theory could have led and should lead to more two-point conversion attempts perhaps getting rick rid of the kickoff return just to you know but that would hurt viewership you think more, that would but, hurt for for me, I hate that because the whole thing is normally they all, all right, 80% is like a touchback and usually have a commercial before and after. And it's just annoying to watch that because it's commercial, touchback, and then you have to watch the and, and the one time they return it, it's a flag on the play. But. No, exactly. You rarely, rarely, rarely see that. <laughs> yeah, so. but it's an exciting play when it happens. But yeah. I mean, no, that was another rule change they made, though, mm-hmm. was they said, we want to see more points, more offense. We're going to start teams at the 25 on a touchback and not 20. So the NFL does make r- yeah. changes. I don't know if they you know, would make a drastic change. I think both of those were subtle enough that most people would agree and say they improved the game. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there are other things that they'll look at to do. Um, one thing the NFL could do, uh, maybe we'll talk about this later uh, in a later show, is uh, adding a seventh playoff team um, to, each, to each conference so only the one seed would get a bye. That would be something to get more teams involved, more games. So that's something else too. But yeah, uh, That would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we'll hit that one on a uh, future topic. But uh, that will wrap it up for us tonight. We will be back next week. Thanks for listening.